I don't want to be a martyr. Nor I. I want to live. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. The cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. I wrote them down in my diary so that I wouldn't have to remember. All right, since last week was so miserable and I know not up to our usual storytelling standards, let's have some fun and talk about the slaughter of tens of thousands of people. Yay! (laughs) I don't know what it is about time and separation by time that makes things easier to deal with, but this bothers me less than anything we talked about last week, and that's mainly simply because it's so far removed from me as to be unaffected. And I don't know if that says more about me or time or anything. Once again, terms and conditions may apply. Your mileage may vary. Let's travel back in time and go to 16th century France. France. We are from France. So if you get that reference, congratulations. It is Civil War time in France, and I think we're going to be done with uh, 16th century England, if you were wondering, if we were going back to it. We might, there's a couple people in there might be worth looking at, but I I need a break from the English, sorry, I'm just too much, that old Irish in me, what can I say? Now, the Civil War in France is the French religious wars, actually, it is a long-running battle between Catholics and French Protestants, particularly of the Calvinist bent, known, I... I'm going to say this wrong 1,700 times. They are the Huguenots, but I've always just called them Huguenots. just is what it is. <laughs> I refuse to be bullied by French pronunciations where you can't even say half of the letters you're supposed to say. I refuse. I spit on your pronunciation, and I say it however I like. So the Huguenots are now the Huguenots. <laughs> Don't ask me what that just was. We're actually going to have fun today. All right, this French Civil War lasts from 1562 to 1598, and yes, that'll be on the quiz, so you need to write that down. This war killed between 2 and 4 million French citizens. Unbelievable death toll. Unbelievable death toll. You won't see death toll like that in French society until World War I. And even then, you won't see it. It's unbelievable, and the saddest part is Due to the cruelty and the the fact that, again, it's civil war and it's religious civil war, meaning it's even more brutal than normal, a lot of those deaths are from disease and famine as crops go untended and illnesses get untreated and sanitation falls by the wayside. Now, despite devouring several million people, this war also devoured French power, authority, and even the majority of its monarchy. So one of the weird things that comes out of history, well, it's not a weird thing, actually, but one of the things that happens in history is the incidents that go on, the the underlying reasons behind the occurrences lay foundations for things which come later on. And part of the reason you see the the weirdness that you see in the French Revolution that you do not see in the American Revolution stems from this Civil War period, who the French people became coming out of this and who they were as a result. Again, you watch you know, millions of peasants and nobility die. You are already on the heels of a renaissance and a reformation that are undoing 
innate trust in authority, and I know authority is not trusted innately by most of humanity, but you know what I mean when I say that, that the the natural inclination of people to just trust the authorities, that's gone after the Protestant Reformation. That's not the goal of the Protestant Reformation, but it's gone because of, uh, primarily because of the Protestant Reformation. If we can challenge the authority of God's supposed representative on earth, we can challenge the authority of anybody. So that's one of the things that helps come out of this on the continent is the the authority structures are weakened after the 16th century. It's why you don't see the bloody persecutions in this after the 16th century like you saw them in the 16th century and before, at least not in Western society and the remnants of Christendom. It's simply because the authority structure is just not in place to do it. Now, this war ends with the Edict of Nantes. I'm, again, I'm just going to call it Nantes. It's, it's French. It's probably like Nantes or something like that. And yes, I spit upon all of your French pronunciations. I despise the French pronunciations. I do not like them. I do not approve of them. And I cast them out. There you go. <laughs> now, this Edict of Nantes is actually a step towards secularization. It... um. It separates religious and political unity. And part of the reason for this, for part of the reason why it does this is the events that we're going to talk about today. But realize how big of a deal that is. There is no longer a need in the nation with this for there to be religious and social unity. You can now separate those two. We can be religiously divided while being socially put together. This is one of the problems that 16th century England was having. Depending on who the ruler was, was dependent on dependent, uh, what was going to happen religiously. Because it was just understood that whoever the monarch is, whoever has all the power and makes all the rules, is going to have uniformity of culture. This is part of what we talked about a little bit last week that I just didn't have the heart to get into. But what you see in modern society is that melting pot idea that creates cultural zones and cultural interactions. Ancient cultures sought to avoid this, and I know medieval times is not necessarily ancient, but other cultures sought to undo that because they viewed it as a negative for society. I'm not saying we're right. I'm not saying they're right. I'm not saying we're wrong. I'm just saying it's a difference and realize that that doesn't really begin to come into, that melting pot idea doesn't begin to come into fashion until the other side of the Protestant Reformation in history. So the Huguenots are legalized, and when we talk about legalization, they're given legalization and representation in France throughout Europe. The edict actually promises that the Huguenots will have protection against the Inquisition if they are traveling abroad, something that the Pope even bemoaned because the the Inquisition, what a show. And if you know that reference, you're a bad person. Stop it. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um <coughs> That's a recognition now that we have French rights even when we're not in France. We have religious rights even when we are in your religious context. This is a different world that is emerging. Now, why does this world emerge? The St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Gotta love this. The, the big people of history. Catherine de' Medici, so if you know anything about your world history, you know about the Habsburgs, you know about the, the Medici, so... She's part of that crew. She is actually the mother of King Charles of France. 
So wrap that around your brain however you'd like. And she decides that she would like to have Gaspar de Coligny executed. Now, who is Gaspar de Coligny? He is the Huguenot military leader. He's actually an admiral who actually won several battles against the monarchy and was able to get sort of a truce drawn up that enabled him to re-enter into Parisian court life. He's hanging out the palace. He becomes friends with King Charles. Mom doesn't like that. She does not approve. So, leading up to the wedding of the king's sister to another Huguenot, that would be um, Henry of Navarre marrying Charles' sister, uh, Catherine de Medici organizes an assassination of good old Gaspard. I like saying Gaspard better than de Coligny, so I'm going to go with that. Which Gaspard survives, and as a result, the Huguenots are a little on edge, and there's an army in and around Paris that the Catholics are now afraid will bring about reprisal. So in order to offset that fear of reprisal, just love the logic here, in order to try to, to soften the, the worries here, they go finish the job on Gaspard. They they sneak into his room. He is run through with a sword. He is thrown out the window, and according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, the crowd on the street beheads him, chops off his limbs and other appendages. Yes, children, we're just not going to say that any farther than that. And begins dragging his now boxy body throughout the streets. Gotta love it. This begins a... A mob mentality that is almost unheard of in history. I mean, the violence will last for three days in Paris. Roman Catholic groups were cordoning off streets and chaining buildings closed in order to then enter them and prevent Protestants from leaving so they could be executed. The king attempts to stop this. There's actually reports of Catholics, Roman Catholic officials at court shielding Protestants from violence, but this is just complete and utter mob rule. Now, starts in Paris, goes for three days, spreads out to the countryside because, again, it takes time for things to move. And people in the countryside start getting these rumors that this is actually sanctioned by Charles, and then they begin the violence. And, of course, the beautiful thing about this time and period is you're just killing piles and piles of people quickly. You just dump their bodies in the river. And that's just what's going on here. There are reports that some of the towns downriver towards the Mediterranean from Paris, their water was undrinkable for three months. That's how polluted and corrupted it was by the dead bodies. And this is where it gets fascinating. There are estimates that I've, and I've seen several of these, between 5,000 people and 100,000 people died in this violence. That's unbelievable. Um, the conservative scholarly estimates try to put it between five and 35,000, as if that's a better number. Um, there's a contemporary account excuse me, from one of the nobility of France that says it's about 70,000. Either way, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Why? Because, again, if your religion is necessary for the function of your government— and those people over there are rejecting your religion, then they are not just a danger to their own immortal souls. They are a danger to everything you believe to be true and right in the world. And this is, <clears throat> this is one of the weird things that comes out of sacralism, something we talked about months and months ago at this point, I'm sure, that as Christianity merges with the 
with the state, you begin to see a corruption of both the state and the church. And we've seen that throughout a lot of these persecutions of the Middle Ages, and it's one of the reasons why you see this separation coming out of the Protestant Reformation, because people recognize, we got to do something about this. We're corrupting everything. And believe it or not, church, we should rejoice in this. Because this is one of those testimonies to the innate evil of humanity, the noetic effect of the fall, and one of the testimonies to the great mercy of God. We don't want to be ponied up to the culture because when the cult, when we are ponied, uh, ponied up to the culture and we are cozied up to them, and that's why I'm talking about horses now, when we're cozied up to the culture, we, we end up being influenced more than we influence them. And that becomes a major problem. And what we have to remember, Christian, is that as culture and Christianity diverge, both are pruned and purified, and that is only good news for the church, and that is only good news for the Christian, because as we are pruned from the world, we are set in line rightly with God, who he is, what he would call us to, and we rightly see the world for what it is, passing away. So I'm not telling you to rejoice that tens of thousands of people were killed in France. It is once again a demonstration that God is operating for our good and for his glory. And you can rest that if the world hates you, if the world loves you, that your standing is going to be determined by who God is and what he believes about you based on who Christ is and what he has done for you. Remember that, Christian. Our identity is in Christ and in nothing else. Until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good.